If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word. Father, we ask that you would cause us to have a great hunger for your word, to have a great hunger for you. We ask, Lord, that you would give to us an insatiable appetite to understand the things that you have revealed to us. That, Father, we may know them, that we may know the things that you want us to know, that we may know you, we may have a better understanding of you, a better understanding of ourselves, as well as a better understanding of life. Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning as we open your word. As always, we are so grateful, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 14, again, Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So once again, just a reminder that when it comes to a definition of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, it is a supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit to speak in a previously unlearned human language. And I guess you could add to that that it's something that takes place in a sense instantaneously. This is not someone who's been studying the language and then they finally get a hold of it, but this is a, a gift that God has given to that individual. Speaking in a tongue or a language is a God-given ability to speak in a language from this planet that is unknown to that person. So whether it's Spanish or German or French or Swahili or English or whatever it happens to be, the individual again has this ability to communicate fluently uh, in this unlearned language. The interpretation of tongues or the interpretation of a language is simply the ability to interpret that message in a language understood by the hearers. And that'll be important, as you'll see, as we kind of work our way again through chapter 14, where that comes into play. And again, remember that all of this continues to be connected to the main purpose for these spiritual gifts, which is so that God, God blesses the church through these gifts. God gives these gifts to believers. Believers are to exercise these gifts for the good of others. Uh, there's never this idea, because sometimes people have thrown this out, that, well, you know, when I speak in tongues, I'm ministering to myself. That's, that's a foreign idea. This is not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, we are to be dependent upon each other. There's a healthy interdependence uh, that God desires that we have. In the same way that a family would function. You know, a husband and wife, we, we sometimes say we depend on each other. And that's not wrong to say it that way. But a good healthy relationship is, is that there is an interdependence. They both are depending on each other. It's not just one way uh, kind of a situation. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of background because, again, we continue to, to contrast what Paul is saying here, <coughs> excuse me, to a great deal of misunderstanding that has gone on through the years concerning this spiritual gift. Part of the misunderstanding, I believe, is the desire of many to have, for lack of a better way to put it, an experience with God or of God, to have some kind of spiritual experience, to have some kind of a moment. Uh, where they, they have a feeling that may be difficult to explain, 
but makes them somehow, at least the way they interpret it, they feel closer to God or they feel more spiritual. And so there's that desire and there are times that we allow that desire to supersede, again, what does the scripture say? In other words, we're dependent upon God's revelation to us to understand spirituality, to understand the relationship we have with God. And so what, takes, what can take place, what has taken place, is because of this very strong desire that some people have, the experience or the experience they're looking for, <coughs> excuse me, uh, supersedes their thinking in the sense that they're going to evaluate what they're feeling and then determine what is true or untrue from that and maybe secondarily go to the scripture instead of immediately evaluating your experience, whatever that may be, according to what the scripture says. And that leads to a lot of problems and difficulties in a person's life. One of the primary concerns that I have with all of that is that often, I can't say always, but often when individuals do that, when the scripture then is in that sense secondary to whatever it is that we've experienced, that normally leads that individual to a weakened state spiritually. They're not going to mature well. They're not going to display the fruit of the Spirit, which has everything to do with our interaction with others, our interaction with life. Uh, it tends to stunt growth. Now, not in every single person, uh, but again, that's just the, kind of the general trend. And also, when that takes place, that then, some people I don't think intend to do this, others do, but there tends to be this atmosphere or this air that somebody communicates non-verbally that if they've had this experience they're somehow somehow superior spiritually superior or they have something that you don't or even if they don't really communicate that the individual who doesn't have the experience feels inferior they may feel that they're missing out on something they may begin to question well why doesn't god do that for me uh, you know that kind of thing and so once again they become overly concerned about the experience, the way that we feel. So again, when I say all those things, uh, we're not belittling human experience. We're not saying that having any kind of feeling is necessarily right or wrong, but that it is never to be primary. You never, uh, just like in, in a, hopefully in a healthy marriage, you, no one ever says, are you happily married? And you say, well, I feel like we are. And since I feel like we are, we must be. Someone may say something similar to that, but the main idea with that is that we don't evaluate our marriage based on how we feel that day, because you may not feel that way tomorrow, or the next day, or, or what have you. Feelings come and go with, for all kinds of reasons. So we don't determine then the value or the uh, place of where a, any kind of relationship is based on just the way that we feel. It's based on much more than that. And again, it's the same thing with God. We have a relationship with God. We continue to talk like this, the language that we use. When we talk about having a, a personal relationship with God, that's what we, we don't really mean private, but we, what we mean is individual. I relate to Christ. He relates to me. We talk about speaking to God. When we pray, we are speaking to him. Uh, there is this assumption that he understands what we are saying. He understands what we mean because he not only understands the words coming out of our mouth, but he knows our hearts. When we read the Bible, we understand what Christ is telling us because the Bible has been, giving, has been given to most of us on the planet in a language that we can understand. And then as we study, we learn to hear better 
because we're looking at the words of the communication and it's being explained to us and those kinds of things. So we just want to make sure, again, that we recognize that this problem then with the misunderstanding of tongues, it, it's a huge thing. It influences thousands of people across the planet. And even those who would not consider themselves basically charismatic, we sometimes are still influenced by those things. And there's been popular writers. One of them is Henry Blackaby. Um, and he's written some popular books. And he talks about, you know, experiencing God. And I'm not against people experiencing God. But when you carefully study what he says, what he ends up teaching is that a church will always be able to determine the will of God based on how the majority feels. I always thought it'd be better just to go back to see what God says. And then we'll just kind of go from there. Uh, and so he does. He ends up saying that. Um, and so there's a, there's a problem with that because that's, that's not biblical. That is not how God leads us. We may at times get, imp- you know, we'll use this language. I really feel impressed by the Lord to do something. That's not wrong to say that. Now, so let's say that I've, I feel and I should do something for Robert. So let's say I, whatever it is, I do it for Robert. I give him a hundred bucks, whatever. What I don't say to him, at least I would never say this. I would never say God told me to give you a hundred dollars because God didn't. Now, I may believe that God would have me to do that because remember, I could be wrong. So I say, I, I believe that I, I need to do that. There's a lot of ways I can say that. And that I'm not taking glory from God when I do that. So the Lord may impress on our hearts to do certain things and we follow it, but we have to be careful because the moment we say something like, well, God told me, then a couple of things happen. Other people hear that and they go, well, God hasn't ever told me that. Or we may begin to think that anytime we hear a voice in our head, now just so you know, it's not just people who are crazy who hear voices in their head. Okay, we all hear voices in our head. Um, you don't want to argue with the voice. Uh, that can be bad, all right? Uh, but the idea is, is that, you know, when we think, you know, we, sometimes we can, we can hear ourselves think. We have a conversation. We hear voices. We, we may have a prompting, and we may say, well, I've, I've been told. We have to be careful with all of that. But what takes place then is it can lead to some confusion because then an individual assumes any time they think they hear anything, that's from God. And again, that's not true. All right, we... Go back to the Word of God to make sure that even if you do have a prompting, that it's clear in the Scripture that it's from God. You are not being unspiritual or unchristian when you have doubts about what you or anyone else thinks they may have heard or not heard. That's not non-Christian. You're not trying to be unspiritual. We're not trying to be a party pooper sort of thing. You know, we just want to make sure that we're, we're clear on what God actually is telling us to do. And there's plenty that we have to do. Believe me, we don't need more. Uh, anyway, so we, we need to make sure we focus on that. So a little bit of history then, just so you know, this modern phenomenon where, you know, we, we know of churches where they, they speak in tongues in services, and this is a, it's fairly common in many different churches. Uh, it, it really began in earnest in 1901. Uh, there was a place called the School of Bethel Bible. Uh, it was in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, the school was uh, established by a guy by the name of Charles Parham. And uh, he had kind of an interesting life. But anyway, there was this unmarried woman there named Agnes Osmond. She first spoke in an unknown tongue. Um, Sometimes, I don't want to just assume that I know this to be true. I think this is true. I think she was just what we would call babbling. But nonetheless, that's what she was doing. 
And so when this event took place, it kind of started this phenomenon where this kind of became a more, more and more a common thing in certain services and then began to infiltrate certain denominations and became part of worship where this kind of thing would take place. There was a movement around the 20th century uh, where tongues became a huge emphasis, almost the only emphasis, um, and that kind of carried all, all the way into the 60s, and I don't know if, you, if you're older like I am, I remember back in the 70s, you had a, a charismatic movement within the Methodist, a charismatic movement within the Catholic Church. Um, when those things took place, there were still a few good things that came out of that, in the sense that I know that among many who were touched by the charismatic movement in Catholicism, they began to read their Bible for themselves. And they had never done that before. And individuals became, became believers, and, and they, would, they left the church uh, and looked for other places that were going to emphasize the Bible. And so God is good in spite uh, of the things that we do sometimes. But this kind of uh, took hold of a lot of people. It became the practice of tongues, and then eventually that led to what's called, and you don't have to know this, but there's a movement called the third wave. Uh, and with the third wave, uh, it, it, that's where we are familiar with the more common concepts, which is individuals or groups who say that speaking in tongues is proof that you've been saved, or that it's proof that you are now baptized by the Spirit, or they might say proof that you've been filled with the Spirit. And so they do tell, or, or, or proof that you even have the Spirit. And there are those who are going to s services that are designed to, I guess, encourage you to seek the gift of tongues so you will then get the Holy Spirit or be filled with the Spirit or be baptized with the Spirit because you're missing out on something until that takes place. And so you have many thousands of people every day throughout our country and other countries uh, that are searching for God through this movement instead of someone just explaining to them that we find God through Christ. I become connected to God through Christ. I speak with God through Christ. It's because of Christ God speaks to me through his word. I don't have to have any kind of experience. I don't have to have any kind of special service. I don't have to go to any kind of special place. I don't have to have any kind of special experience. Uh, we believe it by faith. We trust what God says. And therefore, I am related to God. So when, um, uh, if someone asks you if you're saved and you say yes, and they ask you, how do you know you are? Hopefully what you won't say is, well, all I know is that when I received Jesus, I really felt a release. And you may have. That's good. That's not how you know you're saved. Because what happens if there's a day that comes when you wake up in the morning and you feel the burdens back? You know, now you've got a problem. Because all you're basing it on is on how you feel. Or you say, well, I just really feel like God's forgiven me. I don't know what that feels like. I can't find that in the Bible. What does it mean to feel like you've been forgiven? But I do know this. I know I have been forgiven, period. You know how I know that? Because God says, you are forgiven. Christ has paid the penalty. That's, that's what faith is. It's, it's just trusting what he says. It is. It is that simple. Now, it's very difficult because basically you're turning your entire life over to God. We're stubborn. We want to we wanna have a say in our salvation. We want to have a, 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 state, a stake in the sense that we kind of earned it or whatever it may happen to be. There's many obstacles in the way, but... It's a simple message, and it's been developed that way purposely by God so that all men may come to him. And we preach the gospel. So whether you are seminary trained or not, you can lead people to Christ by sharing with them the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We talk Wednesday night as we're going through uh, 
kind of a quick survey again of Romans to kind of do a quick review. And the bottom line is this, is that when it comes to the gospel message, remember, you never have to convince an individual that they are a sinner and separated from God. You don't have to do that. You just tell them that. You can explain that, but you don't have to make them feel guilty. God takes care of that. Because you're not going to always be able to do that. So you don't have to sound angry when you're telling people about their sin. You don't have to look like you're about to run into, you know, blow a gasket and your blood pressure is about to go through the roof because you want them to understand they're going to go to hell. You just explain it to them because it's, it's true. It's, it's real. And God is the one. And so that's why we pray for those that we speak to. That's why we pray that God will help us to communicate the gospel clearly. Uh, and we don't have to go through all these extra things that people have. Now, those that you talk to who or maybe those who are part of these groups that believe in teaching in tongues, uh, this has been around for a while. They'll tell you that, well, this is a, uh, the Bible says it's a fulfillment of what happens in the book of Joel. So let's look at it real quick. Joel chapter 2. And we'll look at the argument to see if it holds any water. Uh, remember that when it comes to dealing with anything doctrinally, when there's disagreement, and there are some things that are much more difficult to come to a consensus to than others because there's, it's very complicated. But there are also, at the same time, many things that aren't all that complicated. And it's never about who has the most Bible verses. So if someone has 20 Bible verses and you only have one, that does not mean they win. It's not baseball. What we want to make sure we do is we actually properly understand what the Bible says. So if you have one Bible verse and you, you clearly understand what it means, you automatically know one thing about the rest of the Bible. Nowhere does God contradict what he just said. If you've got it and you have understood it correctly, whatever else it, the Bible appears to be saying, it will not contradict what that says. If you come to a firm conclusion it is contradicting it, then you have to go back to the first verse because maybe you don't understand it right. But God does not contradict himself. Amen. So Joel chapter 2, verses 20 through 32. And this is the passage that uh, the, the apostles quote, we'll see it in the book of Acts in a moment, when, when the day of Pentecost takes place. And so in Joel 2.28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, I said this is the passage that Peter, Peter's the one who does this. He quotes this when he preaches on the day of Pentecost in his sermon. And you'll find that in the book of Acts chapter 2. And so what individuals say is, well, listen, we're just following what Peter says. And this is clearly, you know, this fulfillment, or they might say a partial fulfillment of what the book of Joel talks about. The problem is with that is that, again, if you look at the context, which is always important, what is the passage talking about? So when you look at Joel, in the book of Joel, it's clearly talking about a day that is to come in the future. But it wasn't the day of Pentecost, because on this particular day, he talks about not only God pouring out his spirit, but about the sun being turned to darkness and the moon being turned to blood. And then mentions this day as the day of the Lord. That's a specific day. The, the day of the Lord is when the Lord returns. So that's when that takes place. 
So then the question would be, well, then why did Peter quote that when he was giving his sermon? What was he doing with that? Was he telling the people that this was a partial fulfillment or a fulfillment of this? Or was he just ignoring the context? What's going on? Well, I think that basically when you read through what Peter is saying, what he's saying is, is what you see happening here, because remember that on the day of Pentecost, all of a sudden the disciples were filled with the Spirit. And they're all speaking in tongues and other languages. They're preaching the gospel. Basically, people are in Jerusalem from all over the world, and they're hearing the gospel in their language, and they can't believe that they're able to clearly hear their language being spoken because these men are known to be unlearned men. They're not academics. And so how is this happening? Well, this is the movement of God. And then Peter points out, oh, by the way, this is like an illustration. This is like what's going to happen in the future. In other words, he's saying you should be familiar with this. This is, was this something God said he's going to do in the future? And this kind of gives you a glimpse of what that's going to be like. Because this is amazing when you think about it. I mean, you, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many here have graduated from college, and I don't know how many here are, would be considered academics. I know I'm not an academic, that's for sure. But imagine if, if all of a sudden we go to some gathering and uh, as a church, and there's people from all over the world, and then we all start speaking in different languages and we're explaining the gospel. And people say, well, who are those people? That's Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church. Where's Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church? And they're outside the city of Savannah somewhere. I mean, they're just some, you know, they're out there by the area called Montgomery. I don't know. I, they like fishing and uh, they like shrimping. You know, well, how are they all able to speak all these languages? I mean, that's incredible. They say, well, that would be God. And so that, that, that would be the, people would be astounded by that. And so people were astounded by what they were hearing. And that's what took place. And so that's why Peter then quotes this passage so that the Jewish people would understand what it is they were witnessing. They were witnessing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What they see happening there, it's a glimpse of what it's going to be like in the future. And, so, and what that would mean for them is, you need to pay attention. Remember, because the Jews already believed in the one true God. They already believed in such a thing as the Holy Spirit. There's a great deal of theology they didn't have to know, they were already convinced of. What they had not become convinced of, or what they had not believed, was that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, they, they, they didn't understand that. And so now the gospel is being presented to them, and this is a movement of God. And, of course, we see that there's a great response to that during that time. So, what, so back to the, this third wave movement that we've had that occurred here in America and in Europe and South Africa and different places. Again, that's where people have taken the gift of tongues and then misapplied it, misunderstood it and are using it for purposes that it was never intended to be used for, which is a sign that an individual is now either has the Holy Spirit or is now saved or is now filled with the Spirit or has now for the first time been baptized by the Spirit of God. So remember that when Paul is writing all these things, the Corinthian believers, they were in no spiritual condition to properly use spiritual gifts. They were having all kinds of problems, which is why he's writing to them and explaining to them, in particular, tongues, and all these things about tongues because they, like today, many people were misunderstanding, some trying to misuse it for their own purposes, whether it's for popularity, power, money, whatever it happens to be. And so he wants to make sure that they have an understanding. And then also an understanding, again, that it is not this, what we would call babbling. This, you know, this what the, again, there were many religions back then that also practiced, in a sense, tongues. And that was basically a static speech. You know, there was the god of Bacchus, uh, which was the god of wine. So you can, you can just imagine, how would a pagan worship the god of wine? Well, you would drink wine, and you would drink it in excess. And then we get to the point to where they would just would be blubbering fools. 
And someone came along and said, ah, they're speaking in the language of the gods. That's literally what would take place. And people would say that it was a spiritual experience. And so next thing you know, everybody's lining up to go drink the, I don't know if the wine was free or not, I have no idea, uh, but they want to have that experience. You know, they want to speak the language of the gods, even though they really had no idea what they were saying, if they were saying anything. So we just want to make sure that we have that, kind of have a handle on that, because again, there is this idea that even people who, who are Christians who do not believe that they have the gift of tongues, and who do not believe that even babbling is the real gift of tongues, still sometimes can feel inadequate or like they're missing out based on what all the experiences are that are going on by those who are more greatly influenced by this kind of movement. So we don't want to think of individuals in the, in the charismatic movement as being our enemies. They're not our enemies. Now, there's a special category for false teachers. And the Bible talks about that. Second Peter is pretty clear about false teachers and God's judgment on them and how that's going to be handled and how we should handle false teachers within the church. But outside of that, we, we want to make sure that we don't see these individuals as the enemy. And we, sometimes we can, you know, because what they're, what they're spreading is wrong and it can be hurtful uh, and damaging to other people spiritually and we can get kind of upset with them, uh, especially if they're very zealous. And so we, have to, we want to make sure that we are always approaching this as Christians, firm, loving, kind, biblical, uh, and explaining. And again, you can't make someone believe what you're explaining. We want to challenge them and then pray that they will hear, they will hear the word of God and that God will open their eyes. So quickly, uh, um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because a lot of this we've already mentioned, but to kind of do it in an order. So the various views of tongues today are these uh, things I have listed in your bulletin or in your notes. Um, some people believe there's combinations of these things. Some believe that it's one or the other, but basically number one is what we've been talking about just now, which is a static utterance. Uh, it's usually something that comes about because someone is, is uh, brought to a very high emotional level. I mean, you can't do it like they did with Bacchus and just drink wine and get drunk. Or the idea is to kind of get someone worked up to where they're kind of babbling and Again, the assumption is it's the language of the gods. There are those who believe that it is an angelic language. It is, it is, in other words, it's the language that angels use to communicate. Um, the problem with that is that when you look through scripture, uh, angels are always speaking our languages. Let me read to you quickly from the book of Isaiah, uh, beginning in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is writing this and he hears this being spoken and he understands it. There's no clue, no hint in here that this is a new language. He doesn't even say it was a new language and he was made by the miracle of God to understand it. it, he, it they're speaking his language, which is probably Hebrew. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, this is John, the Apostle John writes Revelation. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That sounds like a clear language to me. He speaks to John and John understands. This angel is talking to him. Again, no hint, no clue that this is some secret language uh, that's going on. He, he just he speaks to him. So... You know, John probably spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and probably Greek. So it could have been any, any one of those. 
Revelation chapter 5, John continues, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. And John's going to tell us exactly what the angel said. He doesn't say, and he speaks uh, words that cannot be uttered. He doesn't say that. He says, Who was worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So he's not crying because he can't understand what the angel says. He understands what the angel says, and he's weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll. He wants to know what's in it. There are those who say that it's a heavenly language. In other words, maybe there is, you know, they they might say, well, it's not that the angels don't speak our language, but there's a special language in heaven. I I don't know where you get that from. Uh, They'll say that it's an unspeakable language, that it's unknown to human beings. And sometimes they will point to 2 Corinthians 12. So go there, 2 Corinthians 12. And I will show you where at least some get that idea from. And we'll take a look at it for a few seconds and see uh, very quickly um, that they have made an assumption they should not have made. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning of verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there was nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up in the paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And God knows. And heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So this is Paul uh, Paul talking about himself. Uh, he was caught to the third heaven. He says, whether it's in his body or out of his body, he's just basically, I don't know. He says, I don't know if I was caught up or if I had to He doesn't know. But he's explaining what he experienced. But then he gets to what he, what he heard. And he said he heard some things, and he was told things, but then he says things which man may not utter. Well, what does that really mean? Well, the New American Standard reads this way. I was caught up in the paradise. I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So now that, that, to me, that makes it very clear. It's not, it's an unknown language. He's not allowed to say what he heard. He heard what he heard. I think he understood it. He's not allowed to say what it was. It was only for him. If you look at the NIV, same idea. I was caught to paradise. Uh, He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. So this idea then that there is this language in heaven that only those in heaven can understand and no one else, that's that's not a biblical idea. you You can't show that from scripture. As far as we know, that's untrue. Then there are those who say that there's, and I got this from a a book I was reading by MacArthur as he was studying these movements, and it's called The Sociolinguistic Occurrence. It's really fancy for saying, basically, it is speaking in a combination of many languages at a time. So I guess what that would mean is, I'm talking to you, and while I'm talking to you, I'm interjecting French and German and Spanish and English all at the same time. So unless you know those languages, you're going to be just a wee bit confused. Um, that's kind of the idea that there are some who say uh, that, they, um, that, 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 that that's what this gift is. It doesn't really make any sense to me because, once again, what is the purpose of a spiritual gift? To build people up, not to confuse them. That would be confusing. Uh, I did hear a very confusing uh, conversation once. It was between a really incredible couple. It was a mother and a son. It's when I was in Mauritius. Uh, she was from China, and she only spoke Mandarin but she could understand French. Her son, because she basically escaped uh, China, he was raised there in Mauritius, and he spoke French, and he spoke English. He could not speak Mandarin, but he could understand it. 
So when they would have a conversation, it was very fluid. She's going off in Mandarin, and he's answering in French. And it was just, and you could tell, you could tell, even though I don't, I don't know the languages, you could tell she was clearly speaking something that was not French. And you could clearly tell he was speaking something that was not Mandarin. And there was just this, they had done it their whole lives. That was pretty incredible, but that's not what this is. Uh, but then lastly, what we've already mentioned, and that is, is that the gift of tongues is a human language that is unknown to you. So we're going to just cover a couple points of this now, and we'll look at some more later, uh, because we want to make sure we, we look at, I guess you would say these are the most common mistakes or the most common misunderstandings about speaking in tongues. And this also will help us to understand how the Holy Spirit works and how the Holy Spirit doesn't work, because that's important. Remember that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and what we have always said here, because we believe exactly what the Bible says, is that the moment you become a Christian, at that moment in time, you are baptized by the Spirit of God into the spiritual body of Christ. You now possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now lives in you. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you will be kept by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That's when we're with the Lord. And we believe that to be true. It doesn't matter how you feel. We never talk about what that might feel like because it's never described. You may feel nothing. It's completely unimportant. How do I know that the Holy Spirit lives in me? The only way I know that is because that's what the Bible says. Now, I could point to the fact to say, well, there's times that I'm really convicted of my sin. But non-believers can be convicted of sin to a degree just by their conscience, depending on how they're raised. So it can't just be that. Some people say, well, when I worship God, and if the, if the worship service is really great, whatever that means, I really feel like I'm close to God. That's the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe. But non-believers can come and be moved by a service. They can be moved by a concert. They can be moved by other things. So just because you're moved by something emotionally does not necessarily mean that is evidence of the Holy Spirit. So we're not saying that that feeling is bad. We just have to be careful because, again, the moment you tell individuals or express to them that that's how you know that you have the Spirit of God, there are individuals who may be weaker in the faith, may not have as much knowledge as you and I have, and they begin to think. Because I've talked to people, I've counseled people that something is missing in their life. And it's almost like their spiritual life goes on hold. And they start looking for that feeling. And if you're looking for a feeling, you can find it in a lot of places. In a lot of places that can be damaging to you. So again, the question then would be at least this. Is speaking in tongues an outward sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And what you will notice what's missing in all of that is it never mentions that, the, that you will know that these men are full of spirit because they all speak in tongues. It's not in there. There's just... These are men that are full of the Holy Spirit. They're being led by God. They, are, they have what? Wisdom. So wisdom appears to be the key ingredient here to let them know that these individuals have the Spirit. Acts 11, beginning of verse 22. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A great many people were added to the Lord. Now one of the th reasons that... that Throughout the book of Acts, you'll have this phrase emphasized in certain portions, that a man is full of the Holy Spirit. It's usually uh, someone who's Jewish, but not always. 
but it's always directed towards Jewish readers. And this is why. They believed that the Holy Spirit would only come and indwell only certain people. And we do see that in the Old Testament, that only some people have the Holy Spirit. And it appears, from what we can see, that when they have the Holy Spirit, they have the Holy Spirit only for a, a limited time. Usually they have the Spirit to accomplish whatever God wants to accomplish, and the Spirit leaves. That helps us to make sense out of what David says when he was caught in adultery. In Psalm 51, he prays, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We never have to pray that because it's the ministry of the Spirit has changed because of the cross, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed. God has sent us the Comforter who will remain with us, as again in Ephesians it tells us, we are sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. So again, what we, so the Bible then here in these places is really for some of the Jewish people to make sure they recognize that the Holy Spirit does then indwell believers, all believers. Uh, something unique has taken place. And so they, that would be important for them to know and to grasp and to be reminded of. There was a guy that wrote a letter. He was a pastor. He wrote a letter to John MacArthur. And he, his question was, how do I know if the Holy Spirit is in me? And so he writes this letter to John MacArthur, and the, pa the letter reads this way. Dear Pastor John, can you tell me how can I know for sure if I have the Holy Spirit inside of me? I got saved at eight. I am now 33. I still haven't experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, at least not demonstrably. I would really appreciate it if you could explain to me how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? And there are many individuals who have that question, and part of that maybe just because they're new believers. Part of that, I think, is because of the confusion that's going around. And so then he's asking two distinct questions. How can I know for sure if I have the Holy Spirit in me? And number two, how can I be filled with the Spirit? So remember this. It is possible to be a true believer and not be filled with the Spirit. And we'll talk about that next week. However, it is not possible to be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit within us, if within you. Turn to Romans 8. This will be the last passage you'll look at, but one that we, we can be uh, very dogmatic on because the Scripture is dogmatic. Uh, when the Scripture de de basically states something in an emphatic way, uh, we can hold on to it. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's simple and straightforward. If you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. You're not saved. It is something, again, how do I know that's true? I believe what it says. The Bible has been proven to be true over and over and over again. And this is the clear understanding of this phrasing that Paul uses. So if you, you are not a Christian, if you don't possess the Holy Spirit, so when individuals say, well, you, know, you need to get the, the, the ability to speak in tongues because when you do that, that's how you know that you have, you have the Holy Spirit. You will get the Holy Spirit at that moment in time. Then what you're saying is you're not saved. Actually, you need to believe in Christ. And then there are those who kind of mess with that and say, well, you get some of the Holy Spirit and you get some of the Spirit later and it just gets weird uh, after that. So again, I did tell you that was the last verse. Um, I didn't really tell you. I didn't lie. Um, so you don't have to look this one up. I'll just read it to you. Ephesians 1. <laughs> Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. 
Paul writes, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, and you were sealed with the, Holy, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, or with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the great news is this. Number one, sometimes when we get caught up in sin, and we know we're not living the way that we ought to live, we can lose that sense of assurance that we belong to the Lord. We can begin to doubt that we are saved. We can begin to doubt a lot of things. We might be in a vulnerable position for many different reasons, and because of a conversation with someone who may not be careful with doctrinal language they use, or some book we've read, or something you've heard on the radio or TV or whatever, you may begin to wonder if you really belong to Christ. Well, what I can tell you is that if you believe in Christ, according to what this says, you've been sealed by the Spirit of God that was promised to us by Jesus Christ. He says here that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. My inheritance is in Christ. I'm, I'm going to receive that when I am with him. It's guaranteed. So no matter what sin, so this is not obviously a blank check for you to go out and continue in your sin. Because if you continue in your sin, that might be evidence you don't even know God. But, there's, but it's clearly important for those of us who may be going through some struggles who are doubting if God's going to hear us. You belong to Christ. He's going to hear you. Sometimes we get stuck because we think, we, we suddenly remember or we start becoming aware or feeling guilty about maybe some what we might think, or it might be a, some big sin from the past. And all of a sudden, even though we may have been saved for years, we begin to wonder if God really forgave me for that. Well, the Bible tells us that God forgives. I know women, you know, sometimes a woman has had an abortion when she was younger. They come to Christ at some point. As they mature in the Lord, their heart becomes more sensitive to sin. And for whatever the reason, they, they get hit with an overwhelming sense of guilt because of what took place. And they know that they're guilty of taking the life of, of a child. And, and there's heavy guilt, which I think can be a great thing. It reveals how much their heart has changed. That would be of the Lord. But the doubts that come with that, I don't think are of the Lord. Because you possess the Holy Spirit. You've been forgiven. You are sealed to the day of salvation. There's nothing in the Bible that says, well, except for that one sin, you're in trouble. So, what we have to be careful of is that we don't go looking for emotional comfort. So, when I, so if I'm counseling a woman who's be feeling guilty because of a past abortion, I don't say, well, look, just hang in there and we're going to pray that God will help you feel like you're forgiven. What if that never happens? What if that person's just predisposed and not have those kinds of feelings? What I can tell her is, I can guarantee you that you've been forgiven by God. Because this is what God says. It doesn't matter how you feel. If you feel guilty every day you wake up, you can begin by thanking the Lord that you belong to him and that he has saved you because his grace supersedes any and all sins we've ever committed. That's great news. And that is comforting whether you feel overwhelmedly comforted or not. And I'm thankful to God for that. And so that's why as we work our way through the misunderstanding of the gift of tongues, what Paul says, it's important that we get a handle on this so that we can better understand really the, the greatness and the beauty and the sweetness of this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness and again for the truth of your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would help the truth of your word to sink deeply into our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, that we would see the wonder of Christ and the unbelievable depth and beauty and wonder of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. May we, Father, if it be your will, experience that closeness to you in whatever way that comes our way. But Father, even for those of us who may never have some kind of feeling, we know, Lord, and we can stand firmly on the truth of your word. And that alone, Father, does give us comfort. And we are grateful. Father, I, we are always aware of the fact that there may be some here this morning who have never, they've never experienced, they've never understood, they've never had the forgiveness of their sins. They are still separated from you. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to understand that they indeed are separated, that, that they stand apart from you because of rebellion in their life and heart, but that that can be remedied by trusting in Christ and what he's done, and that you will forgive them. And they may feel a sense of relief, they may not, but that's of no consequence, because you keep your word. You never break a promise, and we can choose to rejoice together and the wonderful promises of God. And so, Father, we ask that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, that you would convince them of their need of Christ. And, Lord, you would enable them to believe in you and to receive the marvelous and the wonderful gift of salvation. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your comfort, for the presence of your Spirit in our life. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.